0: found in the book of Isaiah, chapter 2, which you can find in your church Bibles on page 687. Isaiah, chapter 2, beginning to read at the first verse. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jesus and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountains of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream in it. Many peoples will come and say, come, Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into pillow And to plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war any more. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is the word of God. Thanks, Peter.
1: The second reading this morning can be found on page 994 in the Church Bible and is part of a longer discourse about the signs of the ends of end times. So Matthew chapter 24, beginning to read at verse 36. But about that day or hour no one knows not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with the handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch when you do not expect him. This is the word of the Lord.
2: Oh, good morning. So as we come now to reflect on God's Word, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that your written Word of Scripture may now and always be our rule, your Holy Spirit our teacher, and your greater glory our supreme concern, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. As a child, I grew up in a sports-mad household. And for as long as I can remember, I've always read the newspaper from the back page inwards. And one story that caught my eye recently was about the Chicago Cubs baseball team, who had just won the Major League Baseball World Series for the first time, thus ending what the newspapers described as 108 years of hurt. And this expression, years of hurt, is something that I've become increasingly aware of. It was used to describe Andy Murray winning Wimbledon over 70 years after Fred Perry's last win. And on the 30th of July this year, to mark the 50th anniversary of england winning the world cup i was fortunate enough to be at wembley that afternoon and it would have seemed impossible that 50 years would go by with england no nearer winning it again and as i was preparing compre- and it was as i was preparing for this morning that this phrase years of hurt kept coming back into my mind. For although when related to sport, it is relatively trivial, yet what it does is it speaks of an ache. It speaks of a much deeper longing, which is particularly poignant for us on Advent Sunday, as we remember again the threefold coming of Christ. Jesus came. Jesus comes. Jesus will come again. And the Jews of first century Palestine knew all about waiting. For over 400 years, God had appeared to be silent. It had been that long since Malachi, the last of the Old Testament prophets, had spoken. And it was his words that brought an end to their scriptures. And as the faithful held on to these words through the centuries, remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel, So I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. The people then of Malachi's time were told to wait, to hold on to God's promises and purposes until the time was right. How they must have ached deep within themselves for God to speak. And now they were suffering under the yoke of Roman occupation. Could it possibly get any worse? And yet, as we come to the beginning of the New Testament, there is a palpable sense of anticipation in God's promised Saviour, the Messiah about to be revealed, the one foretold throughout their scriptures who would restore the nation to its former glory. So why, after all these years of waiting, was there this sense of excitement? It was because into this febrile atmosphere, John the Baptist had appeared with his strong call to repentance, fulfilling the prophecy in Malachi. John ministered in the spirit and power of Elijah as Luke tells us, to prepare the people for the Lord's coming. And as the influence of John's ministry grew, more and more people began to think that he could be the Messiah. This grew to such a pitch that the Jewish leaders of that time sent a delegation to ask him if he was the Christ, God's chosen one. John had a very clear idea of who he was, but perhaps even more importantly, who he was not. He knew that his role was to prepare the way for the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And then for all those who could understand, the waiting was over all those years of hurt came to an end as Jesus appeared on the scene and began the ministry prepared for him from his first advent, which we look forward to celebrating again at Christmas. Christ came and he will come again. But in the meantime, Christ comes, as he said to the disciples in the Great Commission before the Ascension, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And this was made possible by the sending of the Spirit. Jesus knew that it was important for us that he returned to the Father after the Resurrection, his job on earth complete, so that his presence was not confined to one group of people in one place at one time. So now, through the Spirit, we can know that he is here with us and will never leave us or forsake us. He is always coming, reaching out to people in every corner of the world, doing far greater works than when limited to one human body. No wonder Paul wrote to the Colossian church of the glorious mysteries of, sorry, of the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ is here. He is in you. And he is in me. And he has no other way of continuing his work except through his church, through each one of us. He needs our bodies, our hands, our feet, our lips, our lives. In fact, our whole being, dedicated and devoted to him, available to do his will. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself and has now committed to us this ministry and with his help which has been the church's task from Pentecost until Jesus returns to reconcile all things for himself. For we know in our experience As Paul wrote to the Roman church, the whole creation has been groaning as in the pangs of childbirth right up to the present day. For we are living between the times, between the time when Jesus introduced God's new era and the time when he will return, to establish God's kingdom in its final form. And that will be our focus now. As we think about the third aspect of Advent, Christ will come again. And we'll look more closely at Matthew chapter 24. And as always with Scripture, it is important that we look at it within its context. The Gospel of Matthew is constructed around five great discourses, which began with the Sermon on the Mount and ends with chapters 24 and 25, which speak specifically of the Second Coming. Jesus was with his disciples on the Mount of Olives and seated like a rabbi, he begins to teach them in response to their questions about the end times. Tell us, they said, when will this happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? This is the last of the major discourses, because it took place after the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday and the imminent events of Easter, which Jesus would have been very conscious of. He had very little time with them left, so there is a real sense of urgency in his teaching. What he is saying to them very clearly is this, this is important. And their question comes in response to Jesus' words about the destruction of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem. Calling their attention to the buildings, he says, do you see all these things? I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. For Jesus clearly sees the connection between the judgment at the fall of Jerusalem and the judgment at the end of the world. He sees the kingdom coming in judgment in AD 70 when Jerusalem is destroyed and the Jewish era is brought to a close. and his own return at the end of the age, as bringing to a close the universal history of mankind. A theologian named C. L. Blomberg researched these chapters thoroughly and showed that all the events outlined here took place, so that, as he said, it demonstrates that everything necessary for Christ's return was accomplished within the first generation of Christianity, so that every subsequent generation has been able to believe that Jesus would come back in their times. And in linking the two events, Jesus helps us to see that his return is as sure to happen as the fall of Jerusalem. For we can know that his words are absolutely trustworthy. The kingdom has come with the first coming of Jesus. It has been inaugurated, but it hasn't yet been consummated. This will only happen at the second coming, when his will shall be done on earth as in heaven. For history is not, as Shakespeare said in Macbeth, a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. But it is a story which has a purpose and an end. And that end will come when Jesus returns. And his coming will settle the future destiny of all people, And when it happens, it will be decisive, but also sudden and unexpected, on a day known only to God the Father. From the very beginning of the church, people have tried to predict the date of the second coming, and all such attempts have proved wrong, and they will continue to do so, it is simply not for us to know. The purpose of prophecy is not to give us history written in the future tense, but like film previews or hazard warning lights on a motorway, to lift our hearts in expectation or else in warning because, as he makes clear, not even Jesus himself knew when that day will come. He tells his followers to be watchful and ready, so that they are not caught out, lulled into a false sense of security. God is looking for a people who are alert and awake to the opportunities he gives us, I can remember once seeing a sticker in a car which read, be alert, your country needs alerts, which is what we're called to be. And as so often to get his point across, Jesus used parables to help his original listeners and us get the point. And in the parable of the 10 bridesmaids or virgins, at the beginning of chapter 25, Jesus introduces the idea of a coming and its consequences for those who should have been preparing for it. For as St. Augustine reminds us, the last day is hidden that every day might be regarded. Unfortunately, only half the young ladies responded to that advice. For in the story, Jesus has a marriage ceremony in mind. He is the bridegroom, and the bridesmaids represent Christians waiting for his return. And the marriage feast symbolizes the second coming. And the message is both solemn and clear. Jesus' disciples must make sure that they're ready for his return. Those who fail to prepare themselves will discover that the day of opportunity will have passed forever. The wise bridesmaids live in a state of readiness, but the foolish ones refuse to face the possibility that the bridegroom might arrive earlier than they had anticipated. And by then they didn't have time to put things right. The simple bridesmaids who are prepared stress the simple truth that readiness is a personal possession. It cannot be borrowed or transferred from one person to another. And this readiness or watchfulness used to be the hallmark of being a disciple. But now it is in danger of dropping off our radar. For as Jesus says, you also must be ready. Or as it says in Mark's version of the same thing. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch For we know he will come, but we don't know when. One person who took this very seriously and modelled it in his life was Lord Shaftesbury, the great Victorian social reformer who did so much for child welfare in his day. And it was said of him that in the last 40 years of his life, Not an hour would go by when he didn't think about the second coming. Even his envelopes for his copious correspondence bore bore these words from the end of Revelation. Maranatha, even so, come, Lord Jesus. For when Jesus returns, he will look for those who though busy and active, are waiting for him with eagerness and trusting in him for their salvation. And in such people, he will expect to find behavior which is worthy of those chosen to be representatives of his kingdom. So as we each consider our response to this glorious reality, it might be helpful for each of us to reflect on these words of Archbishop Anthony Bloom, who said, we must learn to behave in the presence of the invisible Lord as we would in the presence of the Lord made visible to us. This implies primarily an attitude of mind and then it's reflection upon the body. If Christ was here before us, and we stood completely transparent to his gaze, in mind as well as in body, we would feel reverence, the fear of God, adoration, or else perhaps terror but we should not be so easy in our behavior as we are. So, as we conclude this morning, the key question remains for each one of us, and one certainly I ask myself, and that is, am I? Are we alert and ready to welcome Jesus when he returns, as he most certainly will. So in response to God's word, let us take time to reflect as I pray to for us now. Lord Jesus, may we look forward to your second coming with anticipation and hope. And when you do appear, may you find us living our lives in the way you have taught us, waiting with an eager prayer on our lips, bearing the evidence of fruitful service in our lives and ready to welcome you with burning love and expectant faith. Amen.